If you have your Bible, open to Joshua chapter 9. Hopefully as you came in, you received one of the, uh, the bulletins. The amazingly redesigned and updated from the 1980s bulletin uh, of the last couple of weeks. And so we are we're really thankful and excited about this opportunity. But on the back of that are some sermon notes. I tried to make them a bit more readable, though I know they're still, they're still pretty small. But if, if you are helped by being able to follow along with some notes for the sermon, you've got the option there on the, on the back to look at. We're trying to hold together two truths in tension this morning, and so you're going to be able to see both of those in your notes as we, as we try to hold those together with Joshua 9. We've been in this study in the book of Joshua that's going to take us up to uh, Advent season beginning next Sunday and up through Christmas, and then we're going to use it to launch us into a study in 1 Corinthians in, in the new year. One of the values of being able to study a book over a period of time to go through the same material is, one, it forces you to go through some things that you probably wouldn't go through otherwise, to address some topics that come up, and you address those and try to deal with them, um, and then you continue to move on according to God's Word. The other thing that it does, when you read a book through, and you repeat it, and you go back to it, you find things that you wouldn't have found otherwise. One of the things that stood out to me, or a couple of things that stood out to me as I've been studying through Joshua, the first is... Never discount how Genesis 1 through 3 shapes the rest of your Bible. Uh, You can just go back and read Genesis 1 through 3 over and over and over again because it shapes so much, obviously. I mean, this is kind of a... Uh, just a straightforward point, but when you read that and you see the role that that plays throughout Scripture, I've been amazed how much Genesis 1 through 3 comes up in Joshua. Within the book of Joshua... I've been amazed at the parallel between Joshua and the book of Acts in your New Testament. So Joshua follows immediately after that first section of your Bible called the Law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then you get Joshua. In the same way the New Testament is set up where those first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, they frame the ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts looks like the mission of how you carry out the ministry of Jesus. In the same way, Joshua is the mission of carrying out the law of God in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so you can draw so many parallels, ones I didn't even realize were there, between Joshua and Acts. So those two are meant to hold together. And then I guess the final thing I would say about this, I had no idea how important the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 was for understanding what we were going to run into later in the book. And that's going to become really clear this morning as we look at Joshua chapter 9. But you just don't grasp all that's happening in the book of Joshua if you don't see how important Rahab is and how important chapter 2 is for shaping where the book is, is going to go and where, where it's going to take us. And so what we're going to do here in just a moment is we're just going to work through chapter 9, trying to understand it, do Bible study, make sense of it, and then based on chapter 9, I want us to back out and we're going to look at two ideas, discernment and mercy, and how those are meant to fit together in our lives and in our church. So before we do that, I would like us to pray together and then we're going to jump right into Joshua chapter 9. God, I know in my own life, and I I feel this in my mind right now, and I I feel I'm just so tempted uh, to hurry through things, 
to do something for the sake of accomplishing it, checking it off a list, and moving on to the next thing. God, it has been really important for me this morning just to hear the people of God singing these truths that we've seen about your mercy and your grace. To slow down in life, to look deeply into my own heart, my own mind, and, and those things that we struggle with and battle through. And so you gather your people in worship, God, so that we would be reminded of your grace, so that we would be reminded of the good news of Jesus. And this morning, as we work through another difficult chapter in the book of Joshua, God, that you would teach us what it means to be discerning, but you would teach us that in such a way that we never lose sight of your mercy. Because every day, God, I'm reminded of how much I need your mercy. Father, we come into this place with so many things on our minds, so many things in our hearts, so many struggles that we're facing. And we come here declaring together that we don't take on those things by ourselves. God, we are in desperate need of the power of your spirit. We need your spirit to work in our lives right now. And God, we need you to continue to guide us in the days to come. And so we come in the name of Jesus, dependent on your spirit, and we come to look at your word together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Joshua chapter nine, in front of you in your Bible or on your phone, also up here on the screen, if that's helpful for you as well. Starting in verse one. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, uh, toward Lebanon, and then it names a group of peop- groups of people, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, they gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, right there at the end of verse 1 is a key word for the book of Joshua, and it's a key word throughout this chapter, and it's the word heard. It says here that all these groups of people, they heard of what had happened, which have been chapter 8, the way the Israelites went up and defeated the people at Ai. They, they heard about this happening, and verse 2 says, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, when you track back through the book of Joshua, and you look for that word heard, or the idea of hearing something, you find out that it's a key marker throughout the book of Joshua. In chapter 2, Rahab had heard of God's power. Rahab had heard that all, all these things that God had, did, had done to, that was terrible, all the things that God had done to bring the people into the promised land, and she heard that, and she trusted the Lord. She knew that he was great, and he was powerful. You fast forward to chapter five, and you find these groups of people, they are hearing about God's power, and they're afraid. It says they're fearful of what happened. They don't trust God. These other nations here don't trust God. But in chapter 5, they're afraid of what they hear. You get to chapter 9, though, and it says they heard, in verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, here's something interesting. Chapter 5, they hear about God's power, and they don't do anything. Chapter 9, they hear about what happened at the Battle of Ai, and they gathered together to fight. Why would that have been the case? In between those two events is the sin of Achan, where he takes some things for himself, and God allows the Israelites to be defeated. 
In other words, between chapter 5 and chapter 9, the Israelites begin to look vulnerable. And the reason they begin to look vulnerable is not because God is less powerful, it's because sin has begun to creep into their camp. And they face defeat. And so now these enemies that all of a sudden at the beginning thought there's no way I would ever win, all of a sudden they've watched some tape of the previous games and they realize, oh, this team really is beatable. We really could take them on. And so now they're afraid, but they're gathering together to fight. We go to, chapter, to verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went out and made ready provisions and took all these worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and these worn out and mended uh, sandals and clothes that they had. Let's stop right there just for a second. We need to get into the Gibeonites here in just a second. But notice, so in verse, at the end of verse one, the people hear and they gather together to fight. But there's this other group called the Gibeonites And it says in verse 3, when they heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they on their part began to act with cunning. So you have two groups, two groups that hear about what God has been up to and they react in completely opposite ways. One group begins to attack the people of Israel. The other realizes, no, we shouldn't go that direction. We're not going to be able to attack them. We have to go at this from a different perspective. They are more living in fear of God. Just a quick question, because this is a good point for reflection. What happens in your own life when you hear the word of God? When you hear about God's power in someone's life, when you hear and you read in scripture what God is up to, do you find yourself closed off to that? Do you find yourself fighting against that? Or do you find yourself humbled by that, saying, God, I need your power in my life? So much of what happens in Scripture and so much of what happens in the book of Joshua is how people respond when they hear the Word of God. Are you closed off? Are you fighting against it? Or do you find yourself saying, no, I need that power in my life. I need God at work in my life. Just a quick reference point so we're on the same page. Uh, I've got a quick map to show you. The fancy blue arrow is pointing at the town of Gibeon. Uh, up here on your map, that green, green line, green arrows, tracks the people as in the book of Joshua, they enter the promised land. So they traveled west across the Jordan River as the waters were parted. They came in there to Jericho, uh, which you're able to see it is in red there. They traveled kind of west-northwest. That little dot that's just to the southeast of Bethel is I, which came up in uh, chapter 8. And then Gibeon is going to be just kind of south-southwest of of that region. And so that's the group of people that's being referenced here in in chapter 9. Look back in your Bibles just for a second to see what happens here in in chapter 9. There in verse 4, it talks about how they acted on their part with cunning and went out and made ready provisions. What does that word uh, cunning there mean? It's the word for craftiness for trickery but here's the kicker it's also the same word that's used in the book of proverbs for wisdom Um, so this is the same word can have a negative direction to it about being cunning or tricky 
It can also have a positive meaning of being wise and prudent. And so we have to be careful from the beginning of this story that we're not running into a situation here where we're automatically laying on the Gibeonites a particular motive before we actually know how they're acting here. Because don't forget, in chapter 2, Rahab, she also acted with cunning. She also acted with a little bit of trickery. Now, throughout Scripture, you don't find lying, you don't find trickery as something that is held up as a model for action. But in chapter 2, Rahab acts in this way. And then you get to chapter 9, and you find the Gibeonites acting this way. This is the idea, when you look at your kids, and you see particular personality traits in your kids, and you think, that could either go really well, or that could go really badly. Um, so, so same kid... And your challenge as a parent is, how do I take that and try to channel that in the right direction? You know, because sometimes what comes across as being hard-headed could really be a great trait in life. If you could ever just figure out how to take it and, and, and move it in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, what your kids call wisdom, you might call trickery. Um, and, and it just kind of depends on the, the perspective you have, the angle that you look at it. And so what's happening here is the Gibeonites, they're not gathering to fight. They're going to use some trickery, uh, but we don't want to automatically assume that this is going to be a negative thing because you saw the same thing happening in chapter 2 with the story of Rahab. So let's keep reading and see what happens. So they show up here with these worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua, in chapter, or verse 6, they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Why is that such a big deal? Well, in Deuteronomy 20, God had told his people that if another nation comes to you from another location and they come to you in peace, then you're supposed to make peace with them. You're not supposed to destroy them. And so if these Gibeonites can show that they came from another location outside of the promised land, then the people of Israel are required by God, based on Deuteronomy 20, to make a covenant with them, to make peace with them. So you go to verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, they didn't know they were Hivites at that point, people that lived in the land, but they, they said, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Really quickly, what's happening here from the very beginning of this story is they are mixing truth with lies. They're telling enough of the truth that their story might stand up, even though you can tell they're obviously lying. As you read the story of the Gibeonites, uh, think of that classic story of the Trojan horse. They're trying to get in to the city here undercover so that they can find some way to... Uh, not in this situation to attack, but some way to be made right with the people. And so it's almost like a, a Trojan horse type of, of approach. Verse 10, So we heard all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Verse 11, Our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, 
Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions. The people of Israelite, the people of Israel focused on what they could see, what they could touch, what they could smell, what they could taste. They, they, they acted based on their five senses, except what did they not do? They didn't ask counsel from the Lord. Just, and what's happening here is very specifically Joshua was promised back in the book of Numbers that he could come before the Lord through the priests and he could receive judgments about situations, about whether to go one direction or the other. Joshua has been promised that if he will just go to the Lord and ask his counsel, the Lord will tell him what direction to go and what to do. And right here, they don't do that. Now, we have no experience, I'm sure, with making decisions in life without asking the counsel of the Lord and then finding ourselves in a bad situation. So, assuming you know nothing about that uh, feeling personally or, or as, as a family or something like that, look at what happens to the Gibeonites here. Verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with him, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they had lived among them. Always scary when you find out the people living next door to you are not the people that you thought were living next door to you. Um, they had been told they came from another nation, so they made a treaty of peace. Instead, they had been tricked, which means, I just have to throw this in here because it's a good take home. Joshua chapter 9, the title in your mind is Trick or Treaty. Trick or treaty, as in a covenant or an agreement. So uh, that's one of those go-to theology jokes that never gets old, or at least not to me. But uh, <laughs> Verse 17, the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. So they're going to go confront these people about, you lied to us, you tricked us. Verse, uh, now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Kephara, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Murmured there is the same word that was used when the people were traveling through the wilderness and they continued to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Except this time, their complaining and grumbling is well justified because the leaders have not led them in the right direction. They were deceived. And Man, if you're in a position of leadership, does that verse weigh heavily on you that you could be deceived and find yourself in a situation where the people are grumbling against you and you're just thinking, ah, I messed up. We're in a situation we shouldn't have been in otherwise. And so that's a, that's a weighty verse right there. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live 
lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Uh, verse 20 there, uh, if you like to make notes in your Bible, you can make a reference back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. What you find in 1 Samuel 21 is Saul, when he became king of Israel, he didn't pay attention to this covenant that had been made with the Gibeonites, and Saul attacked the Gibeonites, even though God had said to protect them, and God ends up taking seven of Saul's sons uh, in judgment against what he has done. And so when it says the Gibeonites are supposed to be protected, God was serious about that oath that the people made, and when Saul went against that, it literally cost him in, in really dear ways. Verse 21, the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Uh, one of the references in the law, when you find the book of Deuteronomy, is that people who were foreigners who came to live among the Israelites, do you know what the two things they were said that they would do? They would draw water and cut wood. And so what God is telling them right here is you have to treat the Gibeonites as if they are foreigners who come to you because that's what they said they were. That's how you've treated them. Even though you should have destroyed them, instead you're supposed to now treat them the way that a foreigner would have been treated in this situation. Here's the other amazing thing. Archaeologists have found at Gibeon one of the most famous, well-used, well-known water cisterns of the ancient world. And so when it says that the people here are supposed to be drawers of water, it's not just a random comment. This is who they were. This is what they already knew how to do. And so God is going to use that, and he's actually going to leverage it for his people. So the Gibeonites are going to be able to live. They're not going to be destroyed but they're going to be jars of water and they're going to be cutters of wood. They're going to do this type of labor that the people need. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and jars of water for the house of my God. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So much of the Rahab story showing up in that idea. They knew that they were condemned for destruction, but they feared God and they knew they had to do something in this situation. So verse 25, now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So Joshua did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. Now the word delivered there, uh, just, just tying these pieces together, remember that the, the name Joshua means the God who saves, the one who saves. The word for delivered here is a very common word in the Old Testament for saved. It's not the same word that makes up the name Joshua. There were two words that were commonly used for rescuing or saving someone, delivering them. This is a different one, but it carries the same idea as Joshua's name, that he has mercy on them. He delivers them. He saves them. This is exactly what God does for his people throughout the Old Testament. So he did this to them in verse 26, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and jars of water for the congregation, 
and for the altar of the Lord. So these people are going to continue to serve the Lord alongside the Israelites to this very day in the place he should choose. Uh, when you fast forward in your Bible and you get to the book of Nehemiah, you find the Gibeonites mentioned as some of the people who are returning to the promised land after the exile. And so you know for sure that God has kept his promise, that this is how this group of people was to function within the covenant of God, within the people of God. They're even at the time of returning from exile, they're included among the people who would come back. Okay, what do we make of a story like Joshua 9, other than a silly joke about trick or treaty? What, what do we make of this? I have to say, I've really struggled this week. How do we, how do we understand this as a church? Okay, I read the story, kind of makes sense. What does it mean in my life? What do we do with this? What you find are there are two concepts that you have to hold on to that come from the story, and you have to see it from two angles to make sense of this. One is the need for spiritual discernment among the people of God. Lack of spiritual discernment will always hinder the mission of God's people. We'll find ourselves in situations we were never supposed to be in. We'll find the mission compromised. We'll find the people compromised. So spiritual discernment is absolutely necessary. At the same time, we see God's mercy and faithfulness and power on display even in the midst of our weakness. And so we're going to try to tie this up at the end of the sermon here in just a little bit. We're going to try to tie this up of how can you be a person who practices spiritual discernment and at the same time is known as a person of mercy, trusting in the salvation of God, knowing he works in ways that maybe go beyond anything you would have ever imagined or expected. So let's focus on discernment first and then we're going to come back around to mercy and this is where the notes can come into play on the, on the back of your bulletin. So when we think about discernment, we have to realize that one of the things that happens here to the people of Israel is they are fooled by outward appearance, you can't always trust someone based on the way they present themselves. And, and man, we're guilty of this in church. Like if somebody comes and they look religious, we think, ah, oh, they must really have it together and they must be super spiritual. You gotta be so careful about that. For Samuel 16, 7, God doesn't look on the outside appearance. He looks on the condition of, of their heart. And so the people of Israel are fooled by outward appearance. They're also uh, fooled by the right sounding language. So the Gibeonites have done their homework. They're not dumb people. They know when they come to the people of Israel, if they use the right words, even though they don't fully understand the things of God, they're going to be received into the people of God. And we live in a world where people can use the right word. Let me say that again. People can use the same words that we would use in talking about the Bible, talking about the things of God, and mean completely different things by them. But we live in a world that's so dominated by buzzwords, and if you can just follow along by, with the vocabulary, and you can throw in a few things that sound good, even though you have no clue what they mean, you'll find yourself accepted into this inner circle just because you use the right words. Outward appearances... And using the right words does not mean that our heart is right before the Lord. And so as the people of God, we have to be so careful we're not fooled by those two things. No, number one, let's just start with ourselves. Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, because we can use our own outward appearance and our own fancy-sounding church vocabulary to fool our own hearts before we ever worry whether we're fooled by someone else. And so 
This whole idea of spiritual discernment is wrapped up in those things. Also realize, when we talk about spiritual discernment, this is a big topic. This is just a huge umbrella topic that you fit so many things underneath. Uh, Spiritual discernment comes in a couple of different forms. You need discernment to pick between two good options. Uh, So you can have two good options set before you, and you have to choose to go one way or the other. One way is not sinful versus the other. Students are thinking about, where do I go to school? What degree do I? There could be two really good options set before you, and it takes spiritual discernment to know, do I go this way or, or this way? So there's that type of spiritual discernment. There's also spiritual discernment, though, between what is true and what is false. That discernment that says this way would be honoring God, this way would be sinful and rebelling against God. And so we have to make sure we're, we're clear about that. Uh, the other thing I would want you to know up front about spiritual discernment is uh, theology, doctrine, what we believe, that matters for spiritual discernment, but also our actions matter for spiritual discernment. And, and so it's not just having your beliefs right, it's also am I living in a way that honors God. When you read a lot of the early church literature, about discerning false prophets that would come around to the communities, a lot of times what would be told to the people is look at their lives. And we're going to look at this in the book of Matthew here in just a little bit. But if you want to discern if someone's doctrine is right, don't overlook the way that they're living. Don't overlook the fact that our words and our actions should match together. Okay, when we talk about spiritual discernment this morning, what are kind of the main things we're talking about? On your notes, I've used a strategy that is really helpful for me Um, And we've talked about this before at Emmaus, and so if you've been around a little bit, you've probably heard this before. Uh, This comes from James Walker, who is president of Watchman Fellowship. James was with us uh, recently. His ministry is devoted to helping people not get into situations to to make sure they're discerning well. He uses four math uh, elements, and man, sometimes things happen in life and they just go in one ear and out the other. I understand that. That's your story. Listen to me preach, but no, no harm, no foul. Um, other times, stuff just sticks with you. This thing has stuck with me throughout my life, and, and it's something I go back to over and over again. Don't add to the Word of God. So the first math thing is, think about the add sign. Anything that seeks to add to God's Word our spiritual antennas should go up and say, that's a dangerous direction to go. If someone says, yeah, that's good you have the Bible, but you also need X, Y, and Z, and they start to add other things to it, spiritual discernment says don't go down that road. Here's a really important point about that. And we we go back to the early parts of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. The first deception, the first trick that is brought before the people of God comes from the enemy, and what does he say? He says, does God's word really say? Did God really say? An attack on God's word, did God really say X? Don't you need more than that? That's the very first trick that shows up in scripture, and so we should pay attention to that. The minus sign, the subtraction sign, so plus, don't add to God's word. Subtract, don't subtract from who Jesus is. If someone comes along and they say, yeah, Jesus, good teacher, important spiritual guru, but he's not the savior of the world. He's definitely not the creator of the world. He's just a good teacher. Anything that takes away from Jesus being fully God, fully man, spiritual discernment goes off in in your mind. 
The multiply sign. Multiply the requirements for salvation. Anything that messes with the gospel message, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, anything that says you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved, spiritual discernment goes off in your mind. The final, the divide sign, and did you know, time out here, the divide sign where you draw the little dot, draw a line, draw another dot below, that's just the fraction with two numbers missing. The dots are in place of the numbers. So you learn division by understanding fractions, and the divide sign is a dot, a line, and a dot below. <sighs> Blew my mind the first time I learned that three months ago. I've gone my whole life and never knew what the division symbol really represented, that it represented a fraction. Like that was, whew, that was a game changer for me. So however you draw the division, whether it's that little dot, line, dot, or whether it's just the slash line, the point there is dividing the body of Christ. You should be spiritually discerning of anyone who comes along and seeks to divide the body of Christ in such a way that they say, we are the only true group of Christians. We are the only true believers. Now, is there a division between the people of God and those who are not the people of God? Absolutely, we're, we're not saying that. What we're saying is within the body of Christ, when someone comes along and says, you have to be a part of our group to really be a Christian or to really be a follower of Jesus, all of your spiritual discernment meters should go way up. You should say, I have to be so careful and go in that direction. When these things come before us, when you have to make a decision about, is something true? Is this the direction I go? How do we do that? I've listed some things in your notes about how do we discern? How do we understand? How do we not get fooled um, as believers? The first is the role of elders and, and pastors who shepherd, feed, and lead the church. Now, let me be really clear about this. Pastors are not popes. Um, so I don't speak ex cathedra. I don't speak in such a way that my words are able to represent the very words. I want to represent the word of God to you. But I'm human standing before you, realizing I need you as much as you need me. And so as elders and pastors, that role of discernment begins there, that we are doing what we can to protect and lead and feed in such a way that we help the church discern is this true? Is this good? Is this the right direction to go? Second, members who are discerning teaching based on Scripture. When you have a bunch of people gathered together acting as the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, you're going to be in a good spot. Uh, I was about to say teenagers pay attention, which is true. Uh, you guys do a great job paying attention. This is for the adults as well. Discernment is not an individual sport. When you're talking about spiritual discernment, be so careful doing that in isolation. Spiritual discernment is a group activity, and we need one another in that process. We need to be Bereans going back and saying, does this measure up against the word of God? Number three, members who are using the spiritual gift of discernment. 1 Corinthians 12, God says there are some people who have been gifted in such a way that they're able to distinguish between the spirits. That God has placed in this body people who have the gift of spiritual discernment and to be able to go to those folks and say, here's what I'm dealing with, here's what I'm facing, can we go before the Lord and ask for his direction in this? Those of you who have the gift of discernment, one, that you would make yourself available to the body of Christ, not, not pridefully, 
not saying you have all the answers, but just saying God's given me this gift, uh, but, but also just knowing the weight that you carry when you have that gift of, of discernment to think, oh, I see something, but how do I, how do I say this? How do we go this particular direction? So God has gifted the body in such a way that some members are particularly discerning, um, and some of us are just really gullible. So we need people who have the, the gift of discernment to say, well, let's, let's make sure we're seeing this clearly. Number four, distinguish heresy, false teaching, mistakes, and disagreements. So some people hear spiritual discernment, and they get really excited because they see it as their job as to be the discernment police for everybody everywhere. And, and worse yet, we live in a social media culture where if someone disagrees with you, they are always on the polar opposite about everything. And it's name-calling, it's division, and it's all this. There's heresy proclaiming something about Jesus Christ that is not true. And there's, we have a disagreement about this particular doctrine. Those are not the same thing when it comes to spiritual discernment. Uh, Beth Moore says something that I think is really helpful in, in these type of situations. She says, if it's a three, treat it like a three, not a ten. Um, this will save you so much heartache in life. Sometimes we live life in such a way that we run into a level three problem, but we live life in such a way that everything is a level ten problem. No, it, it might just be a level three. Just deal with it as a disagreement, not necessarily as a heresy that's going to destroy the church. Now, even, hold on, even that requires discernment. Is this a disagreement, or is this a serious situation? How do I understand that we have to do those, we have to go through that together? But I just, we want to be so careful that we're not demonizing people just because we disagree with them. We live in a world that already does that, and, and that's not what we're talking about here. Um, number five, evaluate the person's character and direction of life. It's possible to say about someone, I disagree with them, but I look at their life and it's going in a direction that shows the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be able to say, we disagree, but I want to see about their whole trajectory. I want to see where their life is going, how they live. The next one, discern the discernment ministries. Oh, the power of the internet. Oh, man. So there are websites out there and so-called discernment ministries that can be very helpful. So, so don't hear me... Uh, completely throwing all of this out. But some people see it as their role on the internet to be discerning of everyone else. And what you find out pretty quickly is they are discerning of everyone else. And there's pet projects that they have, and there's people they go after, and before you know it, everyone is the spawn of Satan, and there's a very small group of people in the world that have it all together. Even as you're looking at these discernment websites and discernment ministries, be really discerning about them. Um, discernment happens most effectively within the gift of the local church. Before you run off to some website that thinks that every new person that comes along is a false teacher, come to the gift that God has put in front of you to the local church and allow him to guide you through discernment in, in those particular ways. Um, next, learn from historical, global, theological voices. Sometimes discernment, we just need to hear from somebody else. How have people throughout history thought about this? How does somebody in Africa deal with this? Let's, let's get other voices speaking in on this. 
determine the origin? Is it something coming from up inside the church that we really need to pay attention to? Or is it something way out there that somebody just got afraid of and now all of a sudden it's going to be the thing that takes us down? Scripture is much more concerned about something that's bubbling up within the church that's going to cause a problem. Finally, operate with humility and love within the church even as we speak the truth and pursue holiness. Discernment doesn't give us permission to be a jerk. Discernment doesn't equal pride. Discernment says, I care about my brother and sister in Christ and I want to make sure we're going the right direction. And I love it when this happens within Sunday school classes. I love it when this happens within ministries in the church. I love it when we're able to do this together to say, I care about you. I love you. We're going to seek to go through this in a way that honors the Lord. And we're going to love one another and trust one another. Matthew chapter 7. Man, when you think about spiritual discernment, Matthew chapter 7 is, is our friend here. It says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So before we're discerning about someone else, we want to make sure, you know, we're, we're discerning about ourselves. But that verse does not mean that we shouldn't practice judgment. It says don't be judgmental, but by all means we have to practice judgment. We have to be discerning. You get down further in Matthew there, uh, down around verse 14, I believe. Go to that next slide, 15. The same Jesus who said do not judge turns around in verse 15 and says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. You will discern them by their fruits. You can look at someone's life, and they might look one way on the outside, but very quickly you'll find out where their life is heading, what they're teaching, what are the results of that. And then finally, verse 21, there's a different type of discernment, a different type of deception. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I said we were going to wrap up by talking about mercy. Here's what we can't miss sight of. In a chapter, chapter 9 of Joshua, that has so much to say to us about spiritual discernment and the need for that in the church, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush here, so, so stay with me. In my personal experience, in what I see, churches and groups that are very heavy on spiritual discernment are usually, I said usually, usually not very evangelistic, not very merciful. Because we're all driven to, to extremes. Every one of us is susceptible to this. So you have a church that's known for their theology. They're known for being spiritually discerning. If you walk in the, first, the front door the first day and you don't know the book of Romans by heart, sorry, you're a heretic, you're out of here. That's obviously extreme, but there's that feeling of, man, we are spiritually discerning. We hold on to the truth. And then the other extreme is a church that's all about mercy. Man, I, I know you've been in church for 50 years, and, and you don't know John 3.16, but gosh, we just love you, and it's, it's going to be okay, and we're over here. My hope for my life and my hope for this church is that we would be able to hold together those things simultaneously. Spiritual discernment should drive evangelism. If we really care about the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, it should drive us to be overwhelmingly merciful and loving to people around us. To say, when you come, 
I realize you're going to come with a lot of junk. I've got a lot of junk. I realize you have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn. Do we care about the truth? You better believe we care about the truth. We're going to be spiritually discerning. That matters. The question is, can you be spiritually discerning and at the same time be driven by mercy? Be driven by a desire for people to know the things of God. It's hard to hold those together. But I believe that's exactly what God wants us to do. To speak the truth in love. To uphold the gospel and to make sure it goes to every person so they will know the power of God at work in their lives. That's what he's calling us to do individually and that's what he's calling us to do as a church. We come to a time now that we're gonna wrap up our service but when I say wrap up, I mean respond to what, what God's been doing in our lives. The way we do this here at Emmaus is we're gonna sing a final psalm together. During that final psalm, we're gonna pass the offering plates around. You're gonna have a chance to put that guest card, prayer card in there. If you have your offering envelope, being able to give as the Lord has blessed you. But during this final psalm, here's what I would ask you to do. As you're singing, as you're responding, as you're praying, God, how do I need to be discerning? Do I find myself being deceived? Am I going down a road that's dangerous? And God, how do I become a person of mercy, a person who is constantly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? God, make us that type of people. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond in this way. Father, it has been good to be here in the name of Jesus this morning. I don't think I knew coming this morning how much I needed this. Just to hear people singing together, hear conversations in the hallway, come together to look at your word. God, we know that we are a people that are easily deceived. We deceive ourselves and we're deceived by others. And you are the one who comes to us in truth and in grace. So God, I pray that we would embrace that in our lives. God, that you would work in this church that combination that says we hold to the truth, we want to be spiritually discerning, but if we really mean that, we need to be driven by mercy. And we need to be driven with the hope of getting the gospel to our neighborhoods and to the nations. Holding those two together almost seems impossible, and it is according to our flesh, but it's not according to your spirit. So God, do that work in us right now as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.